politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and subjects of the state to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house on Tuesday, August 4th. And it is also day 141 to stop the spread of the virus. As if we could stop the flight of a bee or a fly with a jail cell. We could just stop God's viruses. Day 141 of the 15 days to stop the spread. Well, we're here on the East Coast with the hurricane. And it kind of feels like a lockdown. What if I told you we're going to lock down today because there's a hurricane? You'd say, well, that, that kind of makes sense. What if I said, you know what? Well, there might be a hurricane any time, so let's lock down for 141 days, and really indefinitely, because this is the new normal. Would you allow that to happen? Well, this is no different. Folks, if we don't take back that power, demand better from this president, demand better at a local level, at least in the areas where Trump won, this is not going to matter. You know, every day you see Fauci and Burks make some stupid comment. And I'm thinking, like, who is president? These are people who would serve under the Biden administration. Then, as always, we can't have nice things. Last night, I'm sure you got the email from the Trump campaign. Literally, like, equivocating about masks. There has been some confusion surrounding the usage of masks. I think it's something we should all try to do when we're not able to socially distance. We don't love wearing them either. We don't hate them. They can possibly help us. And it's like, you look like a fool. What sort of narrative do you have? What sort of narrative does Trump have? I'm sorry. I know I'm going to disappoint some people that everything is about a human being. But I'm just telling you, if he somehow does win... How is the second term going to be any better if we don't hold his feet to the fire? And as I've mentioned before, aside from the corona fascism, we also need to hold him to his promise of law and order. And the bottom line is we have the worst breakdown of law and order on his watch. Now, again, like most things, he didn't start the problem, but he needs to solve it. And we're going to talk about this later on in the week about the budget bill. But now is the time to defund the lawless cities. And what's interesting, the one good thing to come out of this is that people are actually buying guns. I don't know if you saw yesterday, um, there was an analysis of background checks by industry analysts, small arms analytics and forecasting, and they found that there were more than 2.3 million guns sold in the U.S. during June. Okay, that's an increase of 145% over last June. So we broke another record. Every month, we're breaking another record. And for you guys, most of you guys own guns. But I'm telling you guys, what a lot of people forget is getting the right holster. And I want to introduce you to our sponsor, We We The People Holsters. What if I told you that you could go and get yourself the best quality holster out there on the web? Really, the best website you can go to? is wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR. Why? The bottom line is you need something snug and secure and comfortable, but that's very versatile. Something that you you just, you know, 
put it in there. And I, I love the click, you know, the draw, boom, and that nice crisp click. Man, that's the feel of freedom. And you'll see it on your emblem with the American Eagle of We the People holsters starting at just 39 bucks. They are all made right here in the USA. Thousands of options to choose from. I got mine right here for my Century Arms Canic TP9 series. Um, but they've had pretty much every one. I have HNK VP9. Um, they are all really solid quality. Just the exterior. I've never even had scratches. Um, really, really good stuff. Um, you can get some cool custom-made ones as well. But folks, now is the time to support the Second Amendment, your own self-defense, American-made products, a patriotic company, and this show. Go to wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR to get your holster. Um, you, you should have a few of them. You know, I like to alternate guns. Obviously, I have a range gun outside the waistband, inside the waistband for carry, even at home. Every holster ships free and comes with a lifetime guarantee. Plus, if you put in promo code CR, you get an extra $10 off. Satisfaction guaranteed. If whatever reason it doesn't fit, you could obviously get a full refund. Again, wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR. Wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash CR. Offer code CR for your $10 off. Now, by the way, I'm going to have an amazing article out later today about what our government said about the efficacy and side effects of mask wearing with regard to forest fires, people that live out west in areas that they have air pollution. You know, maybe you're not under threat of order of evacuation. The fire is not right there, but it's in the vicinity. You look at every State Department of Health, you look at the EPA, they were always consistent that they do not help. And they were like emphatic about it. Dude, this is microbiology it doesn't get it out if anything all it does is just make your lungs work harder um the only thing that work that might work somewhat is a form-fitted n95 and here's how you got to do it and it's got to be form-fitted and you can't have a beard and you know it's got to be sealed and even then you can only wear it for short periods of time because there could be serious side effects if it actually does work then you know you get co2 co2 problems kids should never wear it isn't it kind of funny how before the issue became political, like a forest fire, you know, it's not really political. The government was consistent and emphatic about what you and I are saying to this very day. And by the way, just for context, um, a wood smoke particle that you wouldn't want to get in your lungs is about the smallest ones would be about a thousand nanometers. It's one, which is one micron. Okay, that is one one hundredth of the width of a human hair. That's how small it is. Smaller than bacteria, but nonetheless, a SARS-CoV two particle is estimated to be around sixty to one forty nanometers about 0.1 microns, one-tenth. So, you know, on average, let's say it's one-tenth the size of these dust particles that they said don't work. And, and, and you look at them, they say, look, you know, the stuff you pick up from, from Home Depot or surgical masks are designed for, <clears throat> you know, dust particles or, you know, again, things you could see. 
Surgeries were for spraying, things you could see. Nobody ever thought they could be used for this. And by the way, it's funny how there's so many warnings about wearing a mask while you're driving. Well, isn't that an admission that it can make you a little bit drowsy and out of it? A little disoriented? What does that do for children's learning? Making children wear it at their desk all day in school. Every day. Has anyone thought of that? Are we allowed to even ask that? So there's a lot going on. We obviously have the elections today. We're going to dissect tomorrow. You know, whether our guys win in Kansas and Tennessee. Big rhino versus conservative fights. Again, not that it matters much anymore. This party is so broken. But it's something. So we'll focus on that maybe tomorrow. You have the George Floyd body camera that 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 was leaked. And boy, the uh, you know, Minneapolis authorities are very upset that it leaked out. I wonder why. Now it's a very bizarre video. Something doesn't sit right with me. But I think the one thing we all see is what we all knew is he resisted, but more importantly, he talked about how he couldn't breathe and he wasn't feeling well before they even laid a hand on him. So you can understand why the cops didn't believe him. But ultimately, in retrospect, this is probably a case he was probably telling the truth. So now you put everything together with the autopsy, which was conducted by a top-notch medical examiner in Minnesota. And it it seems almost clear now that the cop likely, when he was kneeling on him, was more more of um, it was more of a check, not a choke. And that really wasn't, you know, what did it, which is why he didn't stop. And it shows this whole thing is a goddamn lie. You know, we said from day one, I mean, there's 270 million interactions with cops every day. And, you know, it doesn't bother me if there's one bad one, you know, punish that guy. But it has no bearings on what police do. And and for every one like that, there's a hundred or a thousand where they use underwhelming force and put themselves and the lives of, of others at risk, particularly with blacks. The University of Michigan study, which now they had to recant because you're not allowed to tell the truth, just like you're not allowed to tell the truth about masks and anything once it becomes political. But here we are. As I pointed out today in my article, my morning column, the BLM war on law and order and lockdowns, corona fascism, are the two issues of our time. And on both issues, we do not see a bold contrast from this administration and certainly from the, from the Republican Party at large. And we are being lied to day in and day out, moving the goalposts. And now it's like, well, we lied. You know what? Now this is the new normal. We're going to make you do this anyway. It's all because people aren't getting the right information. As Patrick Henry warned, 1788, show me that age and country where the rights and liberties of the people were placed on the sole chance of their rulers being good men without a consequent loss of liberty. I say that the loss of that dearest privilege has ever followed with absolute certainty every such mad attempt. You will not get that, get that back on your own. You need to confront your local officials with knowledge. That's why today we're going to talk about the latest trends, fatality rates, the case trends, the curves, with our favorite 
data guru. So who is our favorite data guru? We have today with us Kyle Lamb from Ohio. He's a sportscaster. And before you do anything, you need to go online, if you're listening now, to Twitter. Follow him at Kyle Lamb 8. So that's K-Y-L-A-M-B 8 on Twitter. You got to click on his media and you could see his charts and graphs and tables. They this is some of the best research because part of the problem is you need a PhD to navigate CDC's website. Um, everyone hears the political stuff they put out, but if you actually look at their data, often it really conflicts with their political uh, musings, and we're seeing that a lot on a lot of fronts. And he really vets that out. And you know, some people might say, "Whoa, Daniel, why are you calling some sportscaster? I want to talk to a doctor." Yeah, show me any of these specialists that are like crumpling up a mask into their pocket and cross-contaminating it five times over, and you have to wear your mask. Do they know anything about the actual trends of the virus? And very few of them do. Uh, So that's why this is, as I've said many times, it's a data analysis issue more than anything else, which is why we got Kyle here in the house joining us today on Sierra Podcast. Hey, Kyle, thanks again for coming in. Yeah, Daniel, you you hit you touched on a big pet peeve of mine. You you are you (laughs) are so right about the CDC deal, first of all. They absolutely contradict themselves so many times. Like you, you look at the data that they have up and some of the conclusions that they have, they draw, and then they'll go out on Twitter or, or publicly. Dr. Redfield will say something completely opposite of what's on their website. And, and they love to play both sides of this thing politically. And uh, <laughs> it, it really is kind of annoying when you, when you dig deep into some of those stuff that the, the conclusions they make on the data, and then they come out and say something totally opposite of that in public it's it's really annoying so i want to start with the thirty thousand foot view and then get into some specifics about excess deaths fatality rates lockdown deaths seasonality all the things you know the geography all the things we're trying to uh really analyze here but i had you on last time about a month ago And, and back then you know we still weren't sure what was happening with this resurgence you know until then it seemed like the virus would run six to eight weeks kind of does its thing and then you're done with it and then suddenly we started seeing a resurgence mainly in the southern states but to a certain extent in most states that weren't hit really hard before like in the northeast and you know anecdotally you don't see it doesn't seem to be like anything we saw in the northeast in march and april but you look at the numbers it kind of looks scary they come out with another 240 deaths in florida today as of Tuesday um, and it does seem like they are you know it's not as many as in March and April but enough deaths to really keep the panic board moving what are we actually seeing in terms of a 30,000 foot epidemic level of deaths of death rates of geographical distribution kind of go through the generals of what we're seeing and then tease out where you see this headed for the end of the summer. Yeah, it's so it's interesting because, you know, Nobel laureate Michael Levitt has boldly predicted that this will be over by August 25th. I don't necessarily share his extreme confidence on the matter, but we are seeing that case curve go down in the back states, Florida, Arizona, California, Texas. We're seeing hospitalizations go down in Florida, Arizona, California and Texas. 
it, it's really starting to happen. And, and you saw the graphs the other, and I know we'll talk about the seasonality thing later, but you saw the graphs showing the four case curves side by side, right? In, in my tweet with those four states, and they were almost identical. It's it's shocking how how similar they are. And so we're seeing the, the case and hospitalizations go down in those states, which is a good thing because right now those four states are accounting for about 50% of the deaths occurring in the United States right now. And so if, if the deaths start to trail, which they will, uh, once the cases and hospitalizations go down, the deaths will go down too. It might take another week or two, but we will start to see that here real soon. So once that begins to happen, then it's just a matter of, well, do we have other flare-ups or is that it for us for right now? And, and that's the big question, and I'm not making a prediction on that because you know there are a few states that are still kind of uh, higher than they were, like Mississippi and Georgia. I know are a couple – uh, South Carolina has been a little bit high, although they've kind of shown signs of coming down as well. But there are a few states that are still flaring up. So we just have to see where we are after these four states begin to come down. And if that happens, um, you know, hopefully, you know, cross your fingers, then maybe we'll start to wind down and then we'll have to hold our breaths and and see what's happening with, with uh, you know, a possible second wave and whether that's coming or not. So I'm trying to put together the data and observations, trends that we're seeing geographically around the country with the states and around the world. And I'm seeing kind of two concepts. And if you could explain how the two work harmoniously or or do they are they in conflict? And that's seasonality and saturation, I would say. So seasonality on the one hand. It seems like it started more in the north and then it migrated to the south. And, and it's pretty remarkable. We're seeing it now in Hawaii, which which didn't get it before, and Israel, which didn't get it, and Australia. And again, it shows the remarkable durability of the trends of this virus, that the virus is going to do what it's going to do. Israel and Hawaii are two great examples of where they had like what I call the Anne Frank style lockdown. I mean, just this total house arrest. And then even when they had a modified phase one type of reopening, which they never went further, uh, they had like, you know, you had to have a mask glued to your face. And yet still it it, it came there um, and it's it's growing there. So that seems to be places below the 25th, 20th parallel. But then on the other hand, there seems to be a theory out there that every area is going to have to get saturation, which is the de facto herd immunity threshold, which we've already explained a lot on the show my audience is very familiar with, is going to be somewhere between 50 to 25, 15 to 25 percent, not 70, 80, 90 percent for this virus for several reasons. Um, both because of the heterogeneous nature of who it affects, who transmits it, um, as well as inherent T cell cross immunity from other coronaviruses, so you're going to have um, this this you know b- basically this trend. So my question to you is twofold. Number one, are we seeing that 15-20% threshold being hit in those southern states? Number two, what about states that go farther back north? You know, they're talking about Illinois having more cases, meaning are you going to have is seasonality only a matter of, okay, if you already hit the threshold, so then you're done with it. But if you haven't, if you're one of these parts of the country, I mean, picture some areas in the north, upper Midwest, Great Plains. I doubt they have 15 to 20 percent saturation levels. Are they going to start seeing that? 
Okay, so I'm going to actually make this even more complicated than <laughs> you presented this. I'm going to add in a third layer. It's interesting because people discuss seasonality and, as you said, saturation as sort of competing theories, and they're not. I think they can work together. Now, uh, it remains to be seen if they are working together, but they can. But I'll throw in a third facet because I still think climate plays a role. And people kind of get confused by this because it's like, well, if seasonality is a thing and we're seeing breakouts during the summer in hot areas, right, then it's like, well, then how can climate be playing a role? I think the seasonality determines when you get an outbreak. I think climate determines to what extent you get an outbreak. And I think seasonality or I'm, I'm sorry, herd immunity or saturation determines how long you might get an outbreak mm. or how many times you might get an outbreak because we are seeing climate still play a role. I know that's crazy to think of after we saw the outbreak here in the southern states, but I will remind people that so far the peak in those southern states have been about 50 deaths per million per week. OK, in New Jersey and New York, that number was over 200 per week at the peak. So it's four times higher than we're seeing in those southern states, which means I, I still think climate does play a role. It can be seasonal and be based on solar radiation as to uh, that inhibits the spread. But then the climate hot uh, or heat and humidity can prohibit the spread. So it can kind of keep it in check a little bit. And, and I think that's that's what's happening with viral loads. So, yes, I think seasonality determines when I think the tricky part is the. When states start going down, we know those fact states that I just mentioned all going down at the same time, right? Is that because of herd immunity hitting that saturation threshold where just there's eventually enough people that are already immune that it's going to stop spreading? Or is it because of seasonality disguised as herd immunity? That's the big question because it might just be going down because of the way the earth spins and where the sun is hitting on the earth at that time. And that's what we don't know. So if we start to see these outbreaks again in the north, and we're seeing that in Europe in some places that weren't hit, which means maybe it is herd immunity or maybe it just happens to be trickling back in and, and we have to wait and see where. So that right there, Michael Levitt has pushed that herd immunity theory. He's he's opined most of the places went down at 15 to 20 percent exposure. That could be and, – and he's a lot more brilliant than I am. So, but I'm I'm not completely sold on that yet because it could have just been coincidence. All the places went down seasonality, about that 15 to 20 percent threshold because they all started at the same time as well. So that's what we're looking for. Is it herd immunity that causes the burnout, or is it just seasonality, or both? It could be both. Well, I mean, I I think the thing is, you go to a place like Madrid, you go to some places in London, some of those Western European big cities that got hit hard. They, they should have that de facto herd immunity, whereas you go to the ones that never got hit hard, like Norway. Um, I mean, there's no way you're going to get 15 to 20% saturation there. Um, and yet, there are signs. I mean, you have to watch this. There are signs at a very small level, because they literally had essentially no cases, that cases are now going up in Norway. That was like the big success. And it's it, it, that'll be interesting to watch because everyone was comparing, well, Norway did much better than Sweden did. And we were saying, well, you know, this is only the first inning. You know, right. Sweden could have already achieved herd immunity. And now let's see how you guys do if it, if it does come back. So I think that's something to watch. But if you look around the globe where we, we really are seeing it resurge now in Asia, in, in Hong Kong, in Japan, um, parts of China – 
um, Philippines. So, you know, it really does seem to be in all the places that didn't yet really have it, they're getting it. Um, so that's definitely something to watch for. What is your view on the third world or developing countries? Why is it that it seems almost to a country that it's really only the famous Western countries, whether it's in Europe, North America, um, the you know, Pacific Rim countries that we're hearing about? But when you look at India, when you look at the Muslim Arab countries, when you look at Africa, so you could say they don't have reliable data, and you know that makes sense. But I think in this day and age, if you had like mass graves being dug, we would know about it. And it doesn't seem like many people are dying in these countries. What's the deal with that? Yeah, I, I think that is because they are in tropical climates. I think, as you mentioned, they're poor countries, so they're not testing a lot. So we're not seeing the cases, which are there. They're just not finding them. But they don't have a reason to test or find them because most people aren't dying. I think I think that's where the climate comes. And I think the tropical countries, especially the ones closest to the equator, I really don't think the death rate anywhere that I've seen so far is very high in those countries. And so I think the the African countries especially, there's just not a reason to test and find the cases because they're not getting hit very hard. And I think that has to do with climate. So I think that's your explanation right there. I think that we'll find if we did have a lot of cases detected, the case fatality rates would be so low as we get closer to the equator. And I think that's that's happening with the tropical climates up to the subtropical, up to, of course, when we get into the states like and, and Europe the European countries over 40 degrees north latitude, that's where you really see the larger case fatality rates. So I think that that's where climate comes in. I really do think that it has something to do with maybe the viral loads not being as high in the hotter climates. And and probably that's why people don't get it as bad. That's my that's my explanation. It's just a theory. I don't you know, that's obviously not been proven sure. yet, but I think I really think that's what's going on. You also have to wonder if the median age has something to do with it typically not typically i think almost always in these uh developing countries they just have a ton of kids per right. capita and clearly you know a lot of these most of these countries aren't doing these superstitious lockdowns um they don't have the ability to do it they don't have the desire to do it so you wonder if they're actually burning it out with a younger population which again would give you insight into what we could actually do maybe to a lesser extent but still um successfully i want to get to a chart you have now folks again if you want to uh look at this while we have this discussion go to at kyle lamb eight on twitter click on media so you could just see his latest tables and graphs and it should be close to the top whenever you listen to this you took something from this guy on twitter this really smart guy that no one knows who he is the ethical skeptic and you created a an infograph that seems to be incredibly complicated, but it's also very important. And I wanted to go over it where you basically give estimates of how many people actually really died from COVID versus just had it and happened to die of other things. Um, the excess deaths over the period of time from March, the lockdown deaths, people who died, the excess deaths from lockdown, you give a fatality rate, which is fascinating. 0.18. Could you try to unpack the numbers for us a little bit here? I know it's a little bit tough without visual aids, but let's see. Let's see if we can do this slowly. 
This is something I've been wanting to do, and I have to thank Ethical Skeptic for doing his lockdown research because without this, I would not have been able to do this project. You know, it he really tackled the tough part of this is trying to figure out uh, approximately how many lockdown deaths there are. And full disclosure upfront, this is not an exact science. Okay, yeah, the, these exactly. numbers are very preliminary. So the lockdown deaths could be higher, they could be lower. It's it's really tough to say, but I think this puts us in the ballpark. Ethical skeptic, you mentioned him. Is it kind of reminds me of Dude, Where's My Car? If you remember that '90s movie, uh, <laughs> and his mystery is exceeded only by his power. Uh, that's that's uh, ethical skeptic in a nutshell. So he laid the groundwork for this by doing the lockdown deaths, and I will start with that. So basically, what he determined in his research, and he compared all of the causes of deaths from a couple of years ago that was available in the CDC Wonder database and a few other sources. I think he used on that. But he looked at the number of deaths that were occurring in the same time frame a couple of years ago to compare it to what's happening in 2020. What he determined is when you take away the deaths that were prevented by the lockdown, that's car accidents and, and various uh, workplace accidents and such. Yep. He determined that about 7,000 plus accidents were prevented. Okay, And then he determined about 47,000 lockdown deaths happened because of the lockdown. That's yep. People not getting medical care and not, you know, going for cancer screenings and and et cetera, et cetera. And that number could continue to grow, by the way. So what he what he figured then is that means there's about forty thousand net lockdown deaths. That means more forty thousand more deaths during this period of the year than a normal year. That was instrumental because what I was able to do then is go through and look at how many deaths have been reported to the CDC, how many will be reported that are publicly announced. Yep. I can look how many deaths are above average. There's a thing called excess deaths, and that's the threshold that we're using to determine what is really going on with COVID. Basically, by using the CDC five-year averages, they come up with this excess threshold. It's population adjusted. It kind of says how many would be above a normal threshold. Like you, you allow for variance in population, and they say if if there's 54,000 average deaths in a week, the the excess threshold might be 56,000. That's kind of typical for about this time of year. Yep. So anything over 56,000 in that example would be an excess death. So if there if there's 57,000 deaths in a week, that's about 1,000 excess deaths. So I know this is lengthy, and I appreciate everybody sticking through this explanation, but it's really important. So I added up all of the excess deaths that have been counted so far, and we come to about if you apply the 154,000 deaths so far, 139,000 have been certified by the CDC. But I'm projecting out of the 154 that there's about an 81 percent excess threshold. That means 81 percent of deaths are becoming excess. So right now in this country, we have about 125,000 excess deaths with COVID-19. But that remember. That includes all deaths that are in, uh, occurring for any cause in the United States. Whoa, so, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Right. Let, let me just stop you there. So, so you're you're jumping a step there. You're saying you're discounting the one fifty four thousand number and going to one twenty five. Why? Right, because what I found was out of the one hundred thirty nine thousand provisionally certified deaths by the CDC, only about one hundred and thirteen thousand of them were actually considered excess. So what does that mean? The the rest is like BS? Yeah, yeah, basically, you could conclude that. Basically, it means that they were normally occurring deaths because they were not above the threshold. 
So they were probably deaths that occurred from other things that just happened to be counted as l- 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 Yeah, like we talk about a lot, which makes sense. It would be about 20%. We've seen that 20% just totally, you know, a guy dies in a car accident, guy died of Alzheimer's in a nursing home, maybe tested positive for COVID, it was asymptomatic. We've been talking about that a lot. So, okay, so that, that makes sense to me. So you knocked the number down to 125 from 154. Okay, right. but you're saying really likely the number of people who died from COVID clearly is much lower than that. Yeah, this is where we're going to make the money right here, Daniel. So out of 125,000 excess deaths, we now have to look at how many were caused by the lockdowns. Because remember, we know there are more deaths than usual because of the lockdowns. Mm. So to know how many COVID-19 caused deaths there actually are, we first have to account for all the other deaths that are above average because of the lockdown. And that's where ethical skeptics research came in handy and allowed me to look at this. Because if we take his 40,000 net lockdown deaths, remember there were 7,000 prevented, but 47,000 caused. So we have a net of about 40,000 above average for this for this time of year. So far, February through, you know, as we sit on August, August 4th, as we record this, there have been about 40,000 excess deaths because of the lockdown. So I take 125. 125,000, I subtract the 40,000 lockdown deaths, and what do we have? 85,000 excess deaths because of COVID-19. What that means, what that tells us, is that somewhere in that neighborhood is how many people actually died from COVID-19 rather than just with it. Wow. So 85,000 out of about 154,000 reported, you get about 55% of them actually are from COVID. And, and again, I, I want to say, again, n- none of this is a, an, an exact science, but right. absent the government directly putting out press releases, we're trying to use CDC's own excess death math plus, you know, a very logical conclusion that a good number died from uh, other things. Now, could you talk about that pie of 40,000 net lockdown deaths where that came from. I see he has a certain tabulation here of cardio, diabetes, Alzheimer's, just kind of where that comes from. Yeah, he was looking at a, a number of factors, the big ones. He was looking at cancer. He was looking at heart, heart attack and, and various cardio, cardio factors, uh, stroke. Where did he get those numbers uh, from? Uh, most of them were underlying underlying deaths from the CDC Wonder database, I believe, is where he uh-huh. got most of them, and he had he had to re- rely on reporting on a few other um, uh, uh, for a few of the categories that were not publicly available through the database. I think he used public reports, so he just kind of piecemealed a, a few of the things together. The, look, the the logic he used, the the rationale, how he put this together, the methodology is is absolutely one hundred percent legit. It, but yes. as he said, and and you just said. The numbers themselves are subject to some variance, and they're very preliminary. So the numbers might be off a little bit, but I can tell you the methodology he used is is yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. So, so you're you're determining again a rough estimate that the numerator, and it's still going up. So so this number is going to get a little worse, the fatality rate, um, because the you know you know the the new the denominator maybe won't grow quite as quick well we'll see but the numerator is 85,399 that's what you have down there okay now we have to get a denominator now we have to see how many people actually got the virus now we know the government has officially counted about 4.6 million known cases in the country 
Um, how do you estimate how many real cases? So that's the case, the number of cases, but the number of infections that aren't documented as cases is obviously much higher than that because so many people don't get tested. What is the true number of how many people so far in this country have had COVID? Yeah, so there are, um, before I answer, I will point out, this is another CDC contradictory stance. So I have to, I have to warn <laughs> ahead of time that this doesn't make total sense. And I will explain that in a second, but so the CDC official position is that cases, uh, actual infections are roughly 10 times higher. The prevalence of cases is actually about 10 times higher than confirmed cases. And that's based on a bunch of serology, a series of serology studies for antibodies that they've done in various locations across the country. They've but but determined- let, me, let me challenge that for a minute for, you know, in case some people, you know, have a question. Well, that was just back back in the day when we weren't testing. But now that we're testing like a bunch of hyenas, you know, we are maybe not getting the entire universe, but maybe we're getting more of the universe. And maybe it's only three or four times more, uh, not 10 times more. Right. And, th- and that's a fair point. And they, they have accounted for that. They, they've said now they think the now this was a few weeks ago when they came out with this result. So as of a few weeks ago, they thought the prevalence was 10 times higher than confirmed cases. Now, I do agree that because we've been testing so much and getting so far deep into the total counts of uh, total infections with our testing currently, that I think it's possible that number has come down a little bit. Maybe it's eight or nine times rather than 10 that's a possibility, but I would also counter we're not accounting for possible T-cell immunity, and we know some people may have had infections fought off by T-cells. So I, I, I think that 10 is probably still accurate because yep. it might be lower based on serology, but we're also not accounting for possibility of T-cell uh, fighting off the, the virus. So I think and, and it's going to be very heterogeneous. In other words, in some parts of the country where they really obsessed about it and became a big deal, maybe in Houston and Miami now, I don't know, um, maybe it will be less. But in other parts of the country where they never made a big deal out of it uh, and they didn't, you know, maybe it's more than 10 times. Like, I mean, I've seen some indications that North Carolina might have 18 percent seroprevalence, yeah. um, which would be above the average that we're trying to say. Yeah, um, New, because New York State and New York City both, I think New York State was 18%. New York City, I think, was 23%, if I remember correctly. Yeah, 23%, which, which by the way, I mean, anyone who lived in Brooklyn and Queens, I know people in that area, um, if you account for T-cells, and everyone was pretty much pinged by the virus. I right. mean, it's not 23%. I mean, it, it pretty much it, it exposed everyone. Now, a lot of people just bounced off of them. And that's kind of our point with inherent immunity. Um, but but that's got to factor into the death rate because your chance of dying. Well, what do you mean? I could have that T cell immunity, which could be half, two thirds of the country. So your estimate is you, you just take a times 10, use their methodology. It's about forty six and a half million people right. um, were exposed to covid, got covid. In some way, many, many, you know, probably majority asymptomatically. Um, and that gives us an IFR of 0.18. Right. Daniel, it's funny because I mentioned the the hypocrisy of the CDC and the, the contradictory stances. I, I want to point this out just for humility's sake uh, um, or for humor's sake. So a few weeks back, you may recall, the CDC changed their IFR estimation. They had it internally at 0.26, and that was on their website for about a month. 
And then a few weeks back, they went, they changed and they went to a meta study, which by the way, I think is garbage. And I'm not going to get off, off tangent okay. here, but it, it's, it, it's it, for me, it's, it's a, a lot garbage. of people are asking me about that. They're, they're up to yeah. 0.62. Yeah. They're up to 0.62 and they changed that. And it, 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 it was a political move on their part because they because were getting, we made a big deal out of it. <laughs> right. People made a big, big deal about the 0.26. And so it's, it's points, I think 0.65 now. The irony about that is by changing, they, they are implying a total number of infections that are about half. Like the, the prevalence right now would be about five times the number of cases by moving to that 0.65, even though they are actually saying in the same breath, well, we think the prevalence is 10 times the number of cases. <laughs> But yet they yeah, went to yeah. The- so those two statements contradict each other because, it, it in other words, that would indicate more like twenty-three million infections, whereas their other statement would indicate or imply forty-six and a half million right. infections. But also, you have the fact that they have into their sauce forty percent are asymptomatic. But you know, a number of studies have found. Um, you had one out of Italy that 70% of those under 70 get it asymptomatically. We're now finding more and more that even among seniors, it really is very asymptomatic. I think um, a lot of studies have indicated somewhere in the ballpark of 95% are asymptomatic to mildly symptomatic. So that would mean a heck of a lot of people wouldn't get tested. Um, You know, we're, we're getting more of them with the people going to work and, you know, healthcare workers and whatever you have to automatically get tested. But you know, it stands to reason that they're missing a certain amount there. So 0.18, but now let me just take this a step further. Your numerator is 85,400. Again, that is going to go up, but again, the cases are going to go up. Um, So where is this? 84, let's say, yeah, about 84,000. About how many do we think are nursing home deaths? And the reason why I ask that is because do you think a lot of those got washed out in the fake non-excess deaths? Meaning typically I would take 50% off your number if I want to get the non-nursing home IFR. But my question is, is it fair to do that? Because do, do we assume that a, a, a larger share of the nursing home deaths were filtered out already in the BS deaths because they really didn't right. die from it? Exactly. I, I think a lot of the nursing home deaths that were counting COVID as being the cause, I think those get washed out when we do the excess analysis. So yeah. I, I'm not as worried about that. And I think that explains why, by the way, you you may recall, uh, you may have mentioned on last time we were on, I can't remember, but remember I did the median age dying with COVID versus median age dying from all other causes and COVID, COVID av- or median age was actually higher than all other distribution. And I think one of the reasons why we haven't seen much of a difference is because they are so drastically overcounting some of those uh, older deaths that are occurring that would have happened anyway. And that's why I think we're not seeing a big difference. Yeah. But I think I think the excess analysis does kind of wash those out a little bit. So, yeah, it, it's 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 an important point. But uh, I think that probably takes care of that problem for us. A couple of other things I wanted to go into based on this and then move on to one other thing before we wrap it up. So I, I've seen a couple of things, and I can't remember where I'm trying to ring this up as we're talking, about the death rate among non-sick elderly. Um, I know Phil Kirpin pinged me on something with this, and I can't I can't find it. But if if you look at this, isn't this really a comorbidity issue to the point that it's not even so much an age issue. Now, 
obviously a, a much larger share of people above a certain age have serious underlying conditions. So, and they are immunocompromised. But let's say you're someone who is 70, 75, which there are people that it, are not immunocompromised. Do we have any good data on that to show that your IFR isn't really that much higher? I haven't seen that analysis. That's something I, I do want to see. I haven't dug very deep into it. I think one of the problems is we are told how many of each morbidity type there are included in the deaths, but we haven't seen a breakdown by case which is something that we would need to do to be able to analyze the IFR because yep. we need to see n not just how many comorbidities there are, but how they are attached to each person. I know the average is like 2.6 comorbidities for COVID-19 deaths, which means 2.6 other underlying health issues contributing to the death that's actually put on the, the death certificate. So it, it's definitely a very high number, and it's a great question. So how many people – like we know over 90 percent, I think, have died with comorbidities, which means that that only about 10 percent have zero comorbidities. So it's a very low number, but it's hard to break down by case exactly how yep. many people have have zero so we can analyze that. Well, I'm going to give you an assignment here on air. Um, your next assignment is go through some of the states and find out how many people died in a given state at least reportedly died from COVID above the age of 70 and how many people died in that state in senior care facilities. And what I remember finding like in Pennsylvania, looking at this maybe a month or two ago is that the numbers were pretty close to parity. In other words, the question I started asking was, wait a minute, how many people above the age of 70 died not in a nursing home? Now, to be fair, the, 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 you know, the, Numerator and denominator, they don't match up fully because you could have people in their 60s, even 50s sometimes that are very seriously ill. They're put into these facilities. It's a right. certain number of them. But for the most part, that's going to give you a ballpark figure. And I, I thought that was pretty fascinating that it doesn't seem like that many have died. That many seniors have died outside of nursing homes. Um, so that might be something to look at. We're almost out of time. And I wanted to run two other things by you in terms of the, you know, some of the latest trends. Um, from your CDC excess death data, what have you seen in terms of the rate of death from the top five, you know, morbidities in the country? Heart, stroke, dementia, diabetes. What are you seeing? Because... Michael Levitt put this out last week, I think, on Twitter, and he showed data from Wales, you know, in the UK, not from here, showing that a bunch of these mortalities, morbidities were down. They were down for a few months. You know, cardiovascular deaths were down. And we were we would always laugh about it. Oh, ha, you know, COVID cured, you know, all these other things. And I think until now, my main focus has been to suggest that. They're just padding the COVID numbers and their BS deaths. They, they died of heart. They died of dementia. They died of the things they were typically dying of, except that they just you know coded it as a COVID death because they tested positive. Now, there's definitely some of that going on. But the point that Michael Levitt seemed to be making, if I'm correct, was a second point. That there's a number of people that they legitimately could have died of COVID. They got it. It attacked their lungs. They got it badly. And it killed them. 
but they were of that cohort. It's kind of a redundant manifestation of who does COVID kill? It kills those with the comorbidities, not people that maybe are kind of somewhat sick, but they could slog along sick for 15, 20 years. But for the most part, that it literally would kill those people that this year, right now, March, April, May, June, would have died from dementia, would have died from from cardio. It got them three weeks before. It got them six weeks early. It got them maybe three, four months early. But it's, you know, so technically, yes, they died of COVID, but it wasn't just people that had underlying conditions. It's, it's, it's a, I would say, almost like hospice level. I mean, people really at the end of their lives. Are you seeing any data in the U.S. from CDC to indicate a similar trend here? Yeah, uh, there's um, I haven't looked that closely by by specific cause, but I will say this. Th- this brings up an interesting point because I've said all along to really uh, uh, in addition to the excess uh, threshold analysis to really understand what's going on here. We need to wait until deaths by age uh, come into play here a year from now or two years from now mm. when we can look back and say how many deaths occurred this year by age group and how many usually die by age group because what we might find a year from now daniel is well only about a 10 15 20 percent spike in deaths over 85 years old why is that well because most of those people that died even from covid maybe probably would have died later this year anyhow Mm. and that's what we're not taking into account is that Neil Ferguson, the guy that got everybody riled up back in March with the Imperial College report, even said he thought he felt 66 percent of all people that die with covid would have died in the next year. That's his comment, not mine. Yep. And I I think we're going to we're going to see that when the numbers come out in a year or two from now, when they're finalized, we're going to say, wow, you know, the percentage of over 65, 75s, 85s that died are not that much higher than normal. And that's because like, even if they did die from COVID, they may have gone on and died later that year or within the next year. And so that's going to be something we really have to watch because again, it's all context and that's what's missing from this analysis. If I were a risk analysis guy, I would say we are dropping the ball here in this country because we are not managing our risk well at all. And we really have to get back to analyzing uh, based on context because we're not doing that right now. Yep, I mean, because you could have a bunch of stage four or stage five cancer patients that their immune system is shot from the months or years of radiation and, and chemotherapy, and part of cancer mortality sometimes is the immune system. So they could get whatever pneumonia or flu or other stuff, and this is kind of in the world now, so this is what's going to take over for that. So you might see a temporary spike, but so if you flatten that curve over time, it wasn't you know an excess over a two-year period. Um, it was an excess over a two-month period. So that's a whole other thing. Um, you know, the my my theory is that you certainly do have some of these people dying, but that for the most part, you don't have the 80-year-olds that have another 15 years on the clock, which there are plenty who do these days that are dying. It's the 80-year-olds who had within a year on the clock. Um, And that, again, it, it plays a role when you look at years of life lost, when you look at the overall severity of, of you know what this is. Is it really a man-killer beyond anything else or is it kind of like as i say 
the 2020 tool of the angel of death. In well, other words, this right. is what he does. This is who he comes for. This is kind of the tool he uses. Some cases it's not. Some cases it's asymptomatic. It's it's misattributed to COVID. It really some other things. Other times it's like again. I mean, I, I would I would be I would die to get my hands on this. It's like one of my five top data points I'd love to get. How many people in the senior care facility um, that that died from this or were reportedly di- uh, reported to have died from this? How many were receiving hospice care? Yeah. I would love to know that. Because again, that that makes a very big difference when you're dealing with this. We're about out of time. Um, one more chart I want you to go over. So again, folks, if you scroll down a little bit, you put out this fascinating, mysterious chart um, from CDC of syndrome, or, or no, I'm sorry, it was from the Tennessee Department of Health. <laughs> Syndromatic yes. Surveillance Emergency Room Data. So there's a lot of states put this out where they show a graphic, like a line graph over time of the ebbs and, you know, peaks and, 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 and drops in CLI and ILI. CLI is COVID-like illness and ILI is influenza-like illness. Um, And you, and you tweet something out about this with Tennessee and say, tell me what's wrong with this picture. Now it's hard to depict this over audio but could you first explain what is the difference between corona-like illness and influenza-like illness as documented by these various departments of health? And what funny trend are you picking up in Tennessee and perhaps elsewhere? Yeah, so COVID-like illness was created from its influenza-like uh, predecessor, which influenza-like illness basically measures fever, uh, cough, um, I think runny nose, sore throat. There are a, a few different symptoms that you could display that categorizes as influenza-like illness. And generally speaking, and this is the same for COVID, but just different set of symptoms. If you have a couple minor symptoms or one major, if you come in with a fever, you're generally ILI for sure. If you come in with a cough or runny nose or a few others, then you a couple minor symptoms, then you're ILI. They're doing the same thing with COVID, except it's slightly different symptoms, but fever is one of them. They've added a a bunch in the past month to COVID, so the list gets larger and larger. How How do you distinguish? I'm just saying because aside from the loss of sense and smell, of of, of taste and smell, that seems to be unique to COVID. Isn't the rest like, I mean, like the flu? Mostly the same. The runny nose part wouldn't be on COVID, uh, Uh but the... But there are a lot of them that are, that are the same. And that's why you see because COVID has gotten so many added to the list that you can you can come in with COVID like illness a lot more now than you could ILI early on. It was very, very similar, but it's 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 gotten bigger for COVID. But when you look at this graph put out by the Tennessee Department of Health, it's, it's just as you said, it's just a, a line graph showing over time the difference, the rise and fall of ILI and CLI. Well, the funny thing about the graph is when you look closely, and I, I got to credit Josh Stevenson, by the way, uh, on Twitter, if I had a stick. Uh, he's the one that actually – or I'm sorry. No, this was Matt Malkus that actually uh, noticed this on Twitter. Sorry, Matt. Uh, <laughs> sorry to get that wrong. It was Matt Malkus that noticed this, and this graph starts in October of 2019. 
and it's showing CLI for October 2019. Now, some of you are like, well, wait a minute here. First of all, I will I will issue the disclaimer that I'm sure that they did this retroactively. Yeah, yeah. They took the symptoms that they had in, in the computer systems for back in October, and they retroactively applied the symptoms to show COVID-like illness. It's just interesting that they went so far back with that, though, because it's like, uh, wait a minute, are you saying that if – if we should believe in COVID like illness, you're saying that these symptoms were, were prevalent back in October. That's what you're telling us. If, if you're, if you're going back to October to show, show these symptoms going up, you're seeing December and late December as a massive peak. And then it goes down and then it goes up a little bit in early March and then goes down again. Right. I mean, it's just, it's just really, really bizarre. Um, you know, that it seemed to have peaked. So again, I mean, I think we've, we've all wondered together now that we know that it was in Wuhan a lot earlier than they said it was. I mean, there's been a lot in there. They talk about the fecal matter in, in Lombardy, how they've tested that and found it there last year. Um, so it was around the world earlier than people think Sweden, France, others have, have said that they had it in 2019, really. Again, you wonder how long we were living with this. Don't forget uh, Ethical Skeptic last week on Twitter showing that graph of CO2 emissions like measured by PMI and how he he theorizes that there was a lockdown in China back in September or October of last year based on the way the CO2 emissions went way down uh, globally. He thinks that there was a lockdown. And remember, this is the same time we've seen satellite imagery that's showing heightened uh, hospital activity around that time. We've had a couple, you know, we've seen telephone uh, data that's gone down around that same time. There are a lot of anecdotal stories out there that maybe this was going around China back in the fall and we didn't know about it. I I know it sounds too conspiratorial for some people, but there is evidence pointing to that possibility. No, and people have talked about a mystery illness. I mean, not just here, but in other countries. I mean, there's a lot of open source data on that. Again, I don't know, Kyle. I mean, who knows? But my dad goes to Shanghai a lot. Um, the last time he went was last October, and he told me they took the temperatures when he came in there, and he said they never did that before. Wow. You know, he was traveling I, again. That that's the only thing I could share with you. I mean, if if you guys in the audience travel to China, you know people do. Um, late last year, but before that kind of November, December benchmark that everyone talks about with Wuhan, I think November 18th was the official date they gave. But, you know, this was in October. They were taking temperatures. And he said in all of his career going there and having dealings with them, he had, he never remembers them doing that. And he thought that was odd at the time. So, again, that is certainly something to, to watch because, you know, what the media doesn't tell you can't hurt you. And that would demonstrate what we always thought is that we were living with this. We were living with this. Right. Um, just like we live with a flu, a bug going around that maybe it's picked up in the medical community, but in the general population, we did a whole show on this with the 1957 Asian flu. Nobody who lived at the time even remembers it, um, even though in some ways it was more severe than what we're dealing with today with pregnant women being at risk back then. So, yeah, there's certainly a lot going on. Please keep us posted. Um, folks, you got to check out Kyle's tweets. I mean, it just... You will learn more from his Twitter account than anywhere else. Let's grow his Twitter account at Kyle Lamb 8. That is at K-Y-L-A-M-B-8. And you could send me a, uh email at dharwitz at blazemedia.com. And if you have any questions for Kyle, I could forward them on to him. 
We are out of town. Out of, well, we're out of town, too. Out of D.C., thank God. We are out of time. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.